Well, as we turn to God's Word together now, uh, we are in Exodus chapter 1, and this morning we will be looking at verses 1 to 22 in particular. And what I'm going to argue during the message is that this first chapter of Exodus is introducing us to the main characters of the book of Exodus, one of which, the nation of Israel, is a people under God's blessing, the other of which, Pharaoh and his people, are a people of curse. And so we want to see what the difference is in Scripture of being a people under God's blessing compared to being a people who are under God's curse. And so Nate will come and read for us from Exodus 1, verses 1 to 22. After that, Don will come and read for us from Joshua 24, 14 to 15, which sets this decision before us very starkly about who we will serve. Will we follow the path of blessing or the path of curse? After that, Christy will come up for us and will read for us from 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 7, 1, which again reminds us of the separation that God sees and that we ourselves must hold to, of the separation of light from darkness, of blessing from curse. And then lastly, John will come and read for us from Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14, which speaks of the blessing that we receive as being under Christ. Uh, Just a reminder that in the book of Exodus in particular, uh, the name Yahweh is very important, and so we're going to continue to use the name Yahweh in our readings this morning. Um, it is, does not appear in Exodus chapter 1, which I will touch on in my sermon, but it does appear in Joshua 24. So again, I just wanted to alert you to the significance of the name of God, the personal name of God, Yahweh, and say that we will be reading that name as we read these texts together now. And so with that, uh, Nate, if you'd like to come forward and begin our reading. Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 to 22. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zubalin, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. 
The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dwelt, God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Joshua twenty four fourteen fifteen. Now therefore fear Yahweh and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve Yahweh. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve Yahweh, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in the land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14 through 7, verse 1. The temple of the living God. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? For what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Ephesians 1, 3-14 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Well, as we embark on Exodus chapter 1, we again are introduced to these main characters here in the first chapter, namely the sons of Israel and Pharaoh. Now, other key characters in the narrative of Genesis that we will also come to see much more of, of course, the primary character in all of the narrative is God himself, and we'll see how God is 
addressed in a uh, kind of hidden way in this first chapter. And then the other main character will be Moses, who we'll be introduced to in the very next chapter. But in order to understand the story of Exodus that is about to unfold, it is first most critical to understand who are these people, the Israelites, and who is this king, King Pharaoh. And so that's what we want to look at this morning, who these people are and what implications that might have for us and for our lives even today. Now, if we are going to understand who these people are, we must understand that the book of Exodus is a continuation of the book of Genesis. Okay, so the book of Exodus doesn't come out of thin air. And if you were to begin reading simply in Exodus 1 verse 1, you would be very confused because it uses these names that you don't know who they are. And there's a lot of background to this first chapter of Exodus that you are not aware of. But if you've read the book of Exodus, if you've read the book of Genesis first, and then you've come to the book of Exodus, then these characters are going to make a lot of sense. And so that's what I want to do right now as we look in particular at the Israelites and at Pharaoh, is what do we learn from the book of Genesis that we are now carrying over to the book of Exodus to understand who these characters are and what they represent. Now, the people of Israel, as I mentioned, represent the people of blessing. The people of blessing. Well, how do we know that? Well, in Exodus 1, verse 1, it says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. And then the twelve sons of Jacob, the twelve sons of Israel, are listed there. Now, again, to someone who hasn't read the book of Genesis, this all seems like very abstract information. And yet when we have read Genesis, we come to understand that being a son of Israel is an incredibly significant thing. Being a son of Israel means that you have been brought into covenant, you've been brought into close, intimate relationship with the living God. This relationship began in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis 12, verse 1, God, Yahweh, encounters a man named Abram. And he, simply out of his divine grace, simply out of his mercy, chooses this random person, Abram, and decides that he is going to set his love upon Abram. He is going to make his covenant with Abram. And so this is the the covenant that God makes. This is the promise that God makes in Genesis chapter 12. He says to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now I hope you picked up on how in that promise that God made to Abram, that word blessing or bless occurs many times over. This is what God is going to do for Abram. And again, he does it for Abram, not out of anything that Abram had done, not, of any, not out of any accomplishment that he had. Rather, it was out of sheer grace. It was just out of the giving, loving heart of God that he would choose a sinful man, Abram, and he would say, I am going to pour out my blessing on you. Not only am I just going to pour it out on you sometimes, but I'm going to promise to pour it out to all your generations. And so this is the promise, the amazing promise that God makes to Abram. Now, what's the connection between Abram and who we read of here, Israel? Well, Abram became Abraham. Abraham had a son that was named Isaac. 
Isaac had a son that was named Jacob. Jacob himself had an encounter with this living God, the God of Abraham. And when he had this encounter with the living God, God renamed Jacob Israel. So that's where the name Israel comes from. It's this covenant name, this renaming of Jacob to say that you are someone who has been chosen by God, someone who's been set apart by God to be blessed. We read of that in Genesis chapter 35. And so in Genesis 35 verse 9, it says that God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padamaram and he blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you and I will give the land of your, to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him and Jacob put up a pillar and called the place Bethel. And so this is where God met with Jacob, renamed him Israel, and promised the blessing that he promised to Abraham, promised that this blessing would continue for Israel and for his children. Promised that Israel himself would become a great nation. And so this is the significance of Exodus 1-1, where we are given the sons of Israel. We should already know, okay, these are the people that God has promised to pour out his blessing upon. Now, this theme of blessing itself, even when it comes to Abram, is not a new theme in the scripture. Indeed, the theme of God blessing creation, blessing what he had made, goes back all the way to the very first chapter of Genesis, the very beginning of the whole Bible. After the fifth day of creation, where God made the creatures that lived on the earth, it says God blessed them. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. So those same words of blessing that God speaks to Israel, saying that I will multiply you, I will bless you, are the same words that he's already spoken to the creatures that he has made. And then in Genesis 1, 28, after God created man and woman, it says God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so God's blessing was even upon Adam and Eve, those first humans that he created. And his blessing was this blessing of being fruitful and multiplying. Again, the same blessing that he offered to Israel and the same blessing that we'll soon see play out in Exodus 1. So this is the nation of Israel. This is the people of Israel. It is the descendants of Abraham, the descendants of Isaac, the descendants of Jacob. It is the people whom God, out of his own generous mercy, has chosen and called out from all the nations on the earth, not because they were a great or a good people, but because he is a merciful God and he set his love upon them. This is who the people of Israel are. Now, on the other hand, who is Pharaoh? We're introduced to Pharaoh in verse 8 of Exodus 1. It says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Who is this new king? Well, the first hint that we're given 
over to who this new king is comes to us in verse 10 of this chapter. There, Pharaoh says, Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. So notice the first thing. Pharaoh is opposed to the blessing of God, is he not? When he says, lest they multiply. This is Pharaoh saying, I do not want God's blessing to come about. God's blessing is this blessing of multiplication. And Pharaoh is against it. But the other really fascinating thing about this verse 10 is when Pharaoh says, let us deal shrewdly with them. Now, if you've been reading the book of Genesis, that phrase, that uh, idea that Pharaoh has to deal shrewdly with the people of God should not be new to us. In fact, it should remind us of someone that came before. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, we are introduced to a character who's called the serpent. And what we are told of the serpent in Genesis 3, verse 1, is that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that Yahweh God had made. And so the serpent is introduced as this crafty one, as the one who deals in schemes and lies. This is the nature of the serpent. And so when we hear that Pharaoh is going to deal in a shrewd way, we should immediately think like, oh, this man must have some connection to the serpent. And if we think that way, I think we're on the right track because Genesis itself sets up the whole future narrative of the first five books of the Bible as being a conflict between the offspring of the woman, that is the faithful offspring to God, and the offspring of the serpent on the other hand those who are children of the serpent. Genesis 3, verse 15. God says, I will put enmity between you, that is the serpent, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so this is what we see play out throughout the book of Genesis, throughout the book of Exodus, and so on and so on, as there is the seed, the offspring of the serpent, and there is the faithful offspring of the woman. And these two are in conflict with each other, where the serpent seeks to devour the woman, and where the woman seeks to crush the head of the serpent. And so in this story where we see that Pharaoh is dealing shrewdly with the people of God, we should understand that the book of Exodus here is cluing us off to the fact that Pharaoh is an offspring of the serpent, an offspring of Satan, of the devil. He is shrewd and crafty in the same way that the devil is. He is anti-life in the same way that the devil is. Again, God promised to bless, to multiply, And what does Pharaoh want to do? He wants to kill and destroy. In Exodus 1, verses 11 to 14, we're given a very stark picture of what Pharaoh's attitude was, what his heart was towards God's people. Exodus 1, 11, Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. 
Notice the repetition that the author is using there. Repetition of the words ruthlessly. Repetition of the words slaves and bitter, saying that they were afflicted. This is the heart of the serpent toward the people of God. This is what Satan always wants to do toward the people of God. To afflict them, to make their lives bitter, and to enslave them. Indeed, in Exodus 1, we see Pharaoh's rage, the serpent's rage, coming to its climax. When in verse 22, it says, Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. But you shall let every daughter live. This killing of infants has been in the heart of the devil since ancient times. And every opportunity he has to carry out this desire of his heart, he carries it out. And so in Pharaoh, this is what he seeks to accomplish. The death of the infants of the people of God. Pharaoh is truly a representation of the curse that has come upon the earth through the serpent. And so we have Israel as the people of God and Pharaoh as the people of the curse. Later on in Scripture, it will become even more obvious that Pharaoh is representing for us Satan, the great serpent. In Exodus chapter 7, Pharaoh's sorcerers will actually make snakes, if it couldn't be more obvious that this is who Pharaoh is. In historical times, for those who were the first recipients of this writing, they would certainly know that Pharaoh was a representative of that ancient serpent. In archaeology, we found that on the very crown of Pharaoh, he has a serpent that sticks out from the middle of his head. And then, if all that were not enough in the prophets, like in Isaiah, for example, this is Isaiah 51, verse 9, the prophet says, Was it not you, God, who cut Rahab, that is Egypt, into pieces, who pierced the dragon. So notice the parallel that the prophet is giving there to who Egypt is. Egypt is the dragon. Egypt is the serpent. And so what we are coming upon when we come upon the book of Exodus is we are coming upon the people of God's blessing coming into opposition to the children of the serpent. And so when we come upon this conflict in chapter 1, we naturally ask, right, as people who love narrative, who love story, we naturally ask, well, who's going to win, right? What's going to happen? Who's going to come out on top? And of course, it will take the whole book of Exodus to ultimately answer that question. But even here in Exodus chapter 1, we get a foreshadowing of what is to come. We get a clear indication of who ultimately will win in this battle between the children of God and the children of the serpent. First, notice how God's blessing is taking hold of these his people even before Pharaoh comes onto the scene. So in Exodus 1, verse 7, it says that the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so the land was filled with them. So we see even before this new king comes onto the scene, that this multiplication, that God's blessing truly is taking place. Again, we have the repetition, right? Just as we had the repetition of the affliction and the curse with Pharaoh, so here we have the repetition of fruitful, increased greatly, multiplied, grew exceedingly strong, land was filled, all these different ways of saying that God's blessing is being poured out on these people. So God's blessing is real and it's happening and the people are experiencing it. 
But then what happens when Pharaoh's oppression comes in? Can the power of the serpent overcome the power of the blessing of God? And here, even in Exodus 1, the clear answer to that question is no. The power of the serpent is not stronger than the power of God because even as Pharaoh oppresses the people, look in Exodus 1 verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, the more the blessing grew, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. And so even from this very earliest stage, we see that the blessing of God is sufficient to overcome the curse of the serpent. Beloved, I hope you see this as good news for you even today. All of us, even today, are experiencing something of the curse that the world is under. I mean, maybe it's some kind of physical suffering that you're enduring. Maybe it's relational suffering of some kind. Maybe it's psychological, maybe it's spiritual opposition that you're feeling. You may be feeling the curse in a variety of ways. But know that no matter how you are experiencing the curse right now, that curse is not powerful enough to take you away from God's blessing, from what God can do. And yet, often, just like here in Exodus 1, we have to recognize that the blessing of God that we experience goes hand in hand with the experience of the curse. So just like we see here in Exodus 1, for the people of God, the promise for them is not that their children will not die. The promise for them is not that they will not suffer, that they will not be persecuted. No, the promise for them is that God will bless them and sustain them even in the midst of persecution and even in the midst of suffering. So often we experience God's blessing in the way that Habakkuk chapter 3 speaks of it. Just consider these beautiful words from the prophet. He says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herds in the stalls. So listen to all those things. There is no physical blessing. I don't see any way that God is blessing me in a real way. And yet, here's the prophet's response. Yet, I will rejoice in Yahweh. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Yahweh, the Lord, is my strength He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Beloved, this is the blessing of the Lord that we are to taste and we are to experience. Not the blessing of having everything going well for us, of being really rich, having a lot of money in the bank, never experiencing any problems, everything going smoothly. No, beloved, the blessing that we are to experience is the blessing of being a people in covenant relationship with God. Knowing him as our savior. Knowing him as our redeemer, as the one who has set his love upon us. Beloved, this is a greater blessing than anything that this world could afford. So if you notice your life seeming to go sideways, and you're you're tempted to say, well, God must hate me. He must be opposed to me. I mean, look at the people of Israel in this first chapter of Exodus. Their children are being stolen from them and thrown in the Nile. And yet they're the chosen people of God. (laughs) We must understand that God's blessing 
is not always a matter of the, the physical good things that we receive. God's blessing is ultimately a matter of knowing Him, of being in covenant relationship with Him. So can you this morning taste the goodness of God even in the midst of life's difficulties? Have you seen any ways that God is showing you His goodness even as you suffer? If not, beloved, the problem is not with the Lord. We ourselves must press into God, must seek to know Him, to be found in Him. And it is a promise of Scripture that when we draw near to God, He will draw near to us. And we will know that blessing. But there's even a greater encouragement here for us in Exodus chapter 1 than merely the fact that God can bless us in spite of suffering and in spite of persecution. The first encouragement for us, and I've already alluded to this, is the fact that the people of Israel were chosen by God. They were chosen by God. God's blessing that he is pouring out on the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 1 is not a result of the people of Israel somehow following God to a sufficient degree, listening to him enough, being obedient enough. No, in Exodus chapter 1, the only hint we are giving of why is God blessing these people is again those words in verse 1. They are sons of Israel. (laughs) That's the only explanation. They're sons of Israel. That's why God is blessing them. Now, why is this an encouragement to us? Well, because, beloved, if you have trusted in Christ, if you have trusted in his shed blood, if you have given up on your own works, on your own efforts, and you have cast yourself on the mercy of God, then the reality is that you are chosen. If you have chosen God, that is only because he, in eternity past, has chosen you. He set you apart the same way that he set the people of Israel apart. This is a clear teaching of Scripture, and we read it in Ephesians 1, 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So you see, beloved, the blessing that we can expect from God, the blessing that we experience from God, we don't have to think that, oh, this is contingent upon, am I doing all the right things? Have I done everything perfectly? Might God be holding something against me? Do I need some sort of breakthrough before I experience the blessing of God? The answer to all of that is no. If you have trusted in Christ... God has chosen you and he has committed himself to you in spite of any wrongs that you have done or that you may do. This is the glorious news of the gospel. It is not up to us and our works. It is up to Christ and his perfection that we receive the blessings of God. And this takes us to an even deeper wonder that we see in Exodus 1. And that is that in Exodus 1, all indications are that the people of Israel at this point in time had actually abandoned God. I mean, we get a small hint of this first in the fact that there arose a king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Well, how could it be that a new king did not know Joseph? Was there not this multitude of people who remembered Joseph, who could remind the king who Joseph was? 
It's a strong hint that perhaps the people of Israel themselves had forgotten Joseph and forgotten the God that Joseph served. Another strong hint that we get is that the name Yahweh, the name that is so critical throughout the book of Exodus, is God saying, you will know me by my name. You will know me as Yahweh. Guess what? It does not appear anywhere here in Exodus 1. It's like the people had forgotten the name of God, even though the name is used in Genesis many times. Talking about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, here it does not appear. Yes, the the midwives are spoken of as someone who feared God, but that's hardly saying that they knew in an intimate way Yahweh, the God of their people. And again, as we go on later in Scripture, we're actually told quite plainly that the people of Israel had abandoned God. So we read in Joshua 24, just before the message, Joshua was exhorting the people, saying, Now therefore, fear Yahweh and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. So Joshua was reminding them that when you were in Egypt, you were serving the Egyptian gods. So this is a people who had been set apart by God, set apart in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob who nevertheless, even after God poured out enormous blessing on them through Joseph and then through multiplying in the land, had nevertheless forgotten this God who poured out this abundant grace upon them. And then God, so far from saying, I therefore abandon you as a people because you have forgotten me. No, God says, no, I will pour out my blessing on you even as Pharaoh oppresses you. Beloved, even if you are in a place in your life right now where you feel that you are being disobedient to the Lord in some way and you are walking away from Him, do not let your conscience condemn you and say that it is hopeless. I might as well give up because God has forgotten about me because I have been disobedient to Him. Beloved, that is not how God works. If God has chosen you from before the foundation of the world, If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, then God promises to be yours forever. Now, this is not a license to sin as if, aha, now I can get away with anything. No, I say this to you precisely because this is supposed to incline your heart to God all the more. That he would forgive you from the sins that you commit even today. That even as we are disobedient to God today, despite knowing his goodness in Jesus Christ and all he's done for us, he does not reject us today. And he will not reject us tomorrow or the day after or until the day we die, even though we will all be sinners till the very day that we die. God set his love upon us and he will not remove it from us. His blessing remains in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul tells us this plainly in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, he writes, What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Can our disobedience, can our faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Can our sins overcome God's grace? Paul's answer, verse 4, By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Beloved, rest upon this grace. This is the God who has promised himself to you. The God who separates your sins so far from you as the east is from the west. So don't go on living in sin. 
So don't let Satan, the deceiver, lie to you and say, no, God can't love you anymore. No, your sins are piled too high. It is hopeless. No, just as he showed his mercy and grace to his people here in Exodus chapter 1, so he will show persevering mercy and grace to you, even if right now, today, this morning, you are caught in sin. And he will also give you the power and he will free you from this sin. And so, beloved, cast yourself fully upon the grace of God. Know that you can be a people who experience God's blessing not because of anything you've done, but because God has set his love upon you in Jesus Christ. And what is the outcome for us if we do set our hearts upon God? If we do choose the blessings of God and if we flee from this cursed serpent and all of his works. What's the blessing that we ourselves can hope to receive? Well, the greatest blessing, again, is that we will personally know the living God. That we will have a relationship with him that is nearer than any other human relationship that we could possibly have. Revelation 2 verse 17 reflects the power of this relationship that we are brought into with the living God if we will come under and receive his blessing. Revelation 2.17 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will show him a white stone with a new name written on it, the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. God wants to know you so well. He wants you to know him so well that he actually has a name for you. Chosen out. That's a name that only he knows for you. So that his knowledge of you exceeds the knowledge that any other person could possibly have for you. Now, the the reason I highlight this particular blessing of God in particular is, again, because Exodus chapter 1 also reveals to us this remarkable reality about who does God know by name? Who does God know by name? Probably the most powerful person in the world at the time that Exodus was written was Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. You know, he's equivalent to the American president or whoever it is you think might be the most powerful person in the world. And yet, nowhere in the book of Exodus is that person named. We don't know who this king is. All we know is that he was a king who forgot about Joseph and got his nation ruined. And yet, whose name do we know? Well, just to give one example... If you go down to verse 15 of Exodus chapter 1, it says, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah. So we are given the names of these two Hebrew midwives who deceived the deceiver, who rescued their people. We know their names. God knows their names. He knows them. But who is this king of Egypt? Who is this one who is proud, who resists God? He is forgotten utterly. And yet we remember 
those who oppose the serpent, those who humbly come under the blessing of God, not resisting him as the serpent did, not acting in crafty schemes, but being willing to be humbled by Almighty God, to simply be called his people. And as they come under that great blessing, they come to know the Lord. The Lord knows them by name. And so even though the serpent and all his forces want to oppress them, want to make sure that they do not receive the blessing that God promises, God is stronger still. And God says, you will know me by name. And I will bless you. And so, beloved, let the gospel in this passage just ring in your hearts this morning. That there is nothing right now in heaven and on earth that can keep you away from the love of God. If you will humble yourself under his mighty hand, if you will receive the forgiveness that is offered in Jesus Christ, then you will know that you are chosen by God and that you can know him by name. Would you pray with me now as we pray prayers of confession and intercession for the world around us? Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for this great news that is portrayed for us in Exodus 1. That you set apart this people for yourself and that even though they were a disobedient people, you nevertheless set your love upon them. God, I pray that you would remind us in our own hearts of that grace this morning. That we would be able to stand in wonder sit in wonder, sing in wonder this morning, that you would have mercy on people such as us, that you would choose a people such as us. And God, I pray that as you do that work in our hearts, that we would come to glorify you more and more in our lives each day. Would you now receive our prayers of confession and our prayers of intercession as we, your people, come to you.